You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. So on today's show, I'm joined by Lori L. Tharps. She is a content creator who thrives at the intersection of race and pop culture. Journalist, author, professor, speaker, Lori uses her words to broaden the conversation about race in America. She celebrates diversity whenever possible. Black hair scholarship is her superpower, and curling up with a good book is her idea of heaven. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have a fellow podcaster as well on the show. You have a podcast called My American Melting Pot. And anybody who's listening to this, please go and subscribe and listen to Lori because her podcast is amazing. But we can talk more about that later. Yeah. So tell us about you and who you are and and where you come from. So, yeah, thank you so much for the plug for the podcast. And and really, I have to say this is really a a joy to be on your podcast because I feel like we are kindred spirits in what we are trying to do with our work. So I guess I want to tell people who are listening, like where I come from in this work of, I mean, I feel like my mission in life is to eradicate racism. It's a small mission, um, but <laughs> that's, that's what I do. That's what I use my words. And it's, you know, probably people who knew me when I was, you know, growing up would have never thought that I would have never thought that about myself because I'm a black woman who grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And funny, I think one of your recent guests, I forget his name, but he invented the Monopoly game. Perry Clemens. Yeah. I was like, oh, another Milwaukee person. That's so funny because right? I, I, I live in Philadelphia now and a lot of people don't know anything about Milwaukee. So anyway, um, so you have two guests from Milwaukee. I grew up there and was uh, mostly living in white neighborhoods, went to a private school from kindergarten till 12th grade at the same school where I literally graduated as the only black female in my class. And there were two black males in my grade, uh, but they only came in high school. So, you know, imagine kindergarten really being one of, again, over the years, there was one or two other black girls, but they didn't last through high school like I did. So my, my basic upbringing was very whitewashed. You know, my schooling, my friends, my social world was very white. And my way of dealing with that was just to assimilate. And it wasn't conscious. I mean, it wasn't like I was like, well, I've got to deal with all of this. That's the only world I knew. And at the time, I would have said that my life was great. I mean, I, you know, I had friends, I was, you know, student government leader, you know, studied abroad, I did all the things that a person, you know, who's having a happy childhood did towards the end of my kind of high school years, I you know, started to really recognize what it meant to be the black girl in in a sea of whiteness and started to recognize the, what we would call now microaggressions, but that word didn't exist. (laughs) Um, You know, the the constant kind of microaggressions. And um, I actually wrote a memoir, Kinky Gazpacho is the name of my memoir, kind of chronicling becoming aware of my racial identity. Again, assimilation was what I did. I tried very hard to just be like everybody else and not call attention to my blackness. And I thought that was working until 
it didn't, right? Until I realized that it wasn't, until I had things, you know, experiences where, you know, it was very obvious that people saw me as black or people thought me a little bit less than or whatever it was. And again, these Mm -hmm. weren't overt, like people calling me the N-word or, you know, slamming doors in my faces, but they were subtle. And um, by the time I was 18, I knew that I needed to figure out what it meant to be Black in the world. And when I went to college, I went to Smith College in, in Western Massachusetts. And my plan was to not talk to any white people and just immerse myself in Blackness. And that didn't work because Smith is a predominantly white institution. And when I tried to join the Black Students Alliance, um, nobody rejected me, but I didn't feel comfortable in all Black spaces because I had grown up in all white spaces. And I, you know, the 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 purpose of the Black Students Alliance, the Black Students Group, I can't remember what the actual acronym was, but the purpose there was for people who didn't, you know, it was for Black girls who had grown up with other Black girls and needed help in these predominantly white institutions. And I didn't have that problem. I was very comfortable around white people. I mean, white people raised me, essentially. That's what I always say. Basically, I went through college and just continued with the life I had led before, where many of my friends were not white, but I didn't feel any closer to what it meant to be Black. It wasn't until I'm fast forwarding now because there's, you know, lots of other pieces and things, but I graduated college. I moved to New York, ended up going to grad school, getting my master's degree in journalism while I was in grad school at um, Columbia. It's a one-year program. It's a short and intense program. And we had to pick a topic to write a full like year master's thesis, which is essentially one big kind of article on a topic of our choice. And I chose to write about black hair. And to this day, I cannot tell you exactly what inspired me to choose black hair as my thesis topic, because Mm -hmm. up until that point, I wore relaxer, like my hair was chemically straightened and true to form, you know, misassimilation. I would straighten my hair, you know, every six weeks, get my relaxer retouched and pretty much put my hair in a ponytail. I was the laziest Mm. person ever. I didn't want any, you know, hairstyles that would mark me as like really black, right? I just wanted hair that didn't call attention to me, you know, Mm. and I tried all of the styles that my white friends did, right? I wasn't trying to do anything that was, you know, again, going to call attention to me being different from the people around me. And so again, I can't even say specifically what it was, except that I knew that black hair was my hair and the hair of other black people around me often was the thing that did call attention, that did make us have to step out of our comfort zones of assimilation. For example, when I went to summer camp, you know, I had to tell all the white girls why my hair was braided and I wasn't washing it the way they were every day, right? Or when I studied abroad, I had to explain, you know, my hair routine to other people or why when I went to work, you know, people had questions about the shampoo products I've used, you know, I mean, there were just all these little instances that coalesced and I said, you know, there's something about black hair in America that needs to be investigated. So that, that was just like, again, a revelation because I deep dived into the study of black hair history, politics, the economics of the industry. And I literally found my life. I literally found my life in the studying of black hair because I had to find history books and and documents and interview people that weren't kind of in the mainstream, right? These were not history books that I had been ever taught. There was so much to understanding how significant black hair was to black people, again, politically, socially, culturally, economically, that it 
it flipped my world. I learned so much by teaching myself this information about how powerful Black people were, about how cruel white people were to, you know, Africans who had been enslaved. I mean, the cruelty beyond, you know, what you saw, you know, in the book, you know, some whips and some, you know, things that were just kind of basic narrative of what slavery was. I'm talking like psychological, like intentional psychological brainwashing, that that was a system of oppression was the psychological oppression of believing we were less than just physically as a different species. I mean, it was just mind-blowing to me that I learned so much that nobody had ever taught me that I'd never seen and that I'd just been blind to. I mean, I just suddenly appreciated how powerful, not just our hair, but like the, the Black experience, like that we were survivors. And you could see that survival, that resilience, that strength in our hair. And so it was like, to this day, which I'm still like a hair story. And I say, I can still last almost connect everything to hair. Like I can literally, you could ask me like about the weather and I can somehow link that to the history of black people and their hair in America. Um, and it's not even just America. It's anywhere the African diaspora, you know, anywhere that black people are living outside of the continent. This story is so sim- similar and so familiar. After I did that research, after I handed in my project, I went and hacked off all of my hair, all of my relaxed, straightened hair. I put my hands up to the top of my head and I felt my hair and it was like I felt myself, like I figured out who I was. And from then on, I was just on this mission to educate people. So that master's thesis became my first book. I co-wrote it with a good friend who had had a similar experience writing a similar thesis for her undergraduate work, Ayana Bird, amazing journalist as well. And we wrote Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, because we were so on fire with this knowledge. We were like everybody in the world, Black people, white people, Asian people, like everybody needs to understand this information. They need to have this information and they need to understand how significant Black hair is um, in Black people's identity as well as American culture. So that was the beginning of my understanding that, that stories matter, that history matters, and that history can free us and that understanding, you know, so much that has been hidden can free my people, that can free Black people, but can also be that kind of bridge of understanding for non-Black people. And, and that really started my, like, idea that my mission is to use my words to expand this narrative, the narrow narrative of Blackness in America and in the world, but also on a greater scale to expand people's understanding of like um, diversity and multiculturalism and, and how these things impact our everyday life. The thing about hair is that everybody has it, right? It's right. like everybody has hair. Everybody does their hair. Everybody shops for different hair products. It's not policy. It's not things that are so above people's head that they can't dial in and empathize or understand what we're talking about on scales of like talking about white supremacy and racism. But you can understand I can't find any hair products that work with my hair. You can understand I got fired because I was wearing my hair in a certain style. It seems absurd, that, but everybody can understand that. And so that really touched me that as an like I see myself as a writer, but also as an educator 
that people can understand hair, right? They can understand things that they also connect with. That was my introduction to, you know, how I can make a difference in the world is, again, telling stories, using my words, but trying to find that entry point that most humans can relate to. That's That's a super long answer. (laughs) I love it. And as you were talking, I'm like, we really are kindred. You're like this evangelist personality, right? You learn something, you're taking it. Like, I'm going to tell everybody about it and I'm going to spread the word. So you wrote Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. And you said that it made you fall in love with blackness. Can you talk about that a little bit more specifically? Yes, absolutely. So um, I'm going to go back to my hair. So, you know, growing up in Again, mostly white spaces. I mean, my I keep saying mostly white. It was totally white, except for my family, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm so lucky to have, my mother has 10 sisters and one brother. And, you know, that was th- their family. My family was really a significant part of my life. So all those sisters were mostly in Milwaukee as well, minus, you know, one or two. But family gatherings, you know, babysitters, birthday parties, it all revolved around family. So it wasn't like I didn't have any, you know, connection to blackness, but um, you know, my my day-to-day life was, you know, surrounded by white people. So the relationship I had with my hair and and I love my mother. My mother is a wonderful mother. She is a wonderful mother, but you know, the language she used around my hair was like, it was difficult, right? It was difficult to maintain, you know, and so when the idea of being able to perm my hair, to straighten it chemically, you know, it was like for her, it was a revelation. It was so wonderful because it made my hair more manageable. And so I just had this basic, I mean, it wasn't a, I didn't feel bad about my hair. I just understood that my hair was difficult that my hair took a lot of work and it was something that needed to be altered or fixed, right? Mm, And so I didn't walk around hating my hair. I was never one of those children who was like, I wish I had blonde hair. I wish I had, you know, hair that moves like, you know, my, my white girlfriends. I just understood that we put these chemicals in it and then it becomes manageable and good and easy, right? Um, And likewise, The idea of, you know, like the extension of that was being black wasn't a bad thing, but it was just kind of a neutral thing. And again, I will never fault my parents because I think my parents were wonderful and they worked with what they had and they did what they thought was best for us. You know, they sacrificed so much to, you know, put us through private school, send us to college, give us as much as they could, so much more beyond what they had. But what they didn't do is tell us why we should be proud to be Black. They didn't tell us it was a bad thing, but they didn't give us anything to kind of counterbalance what we were taught in school, what we saw in the media. I mean, we watched the Cosby show together, right? Um, And we, you know, again, had this wonderful family. But as far as what I learned and what I understood, there was nothing to say it's great to be Black. It was more like you're Black, so you might have to work harder for these things and people might see you in this way. But it's okay. You're smart. You're clever. You're funny. You're doing great in all things. So clearly it's not holding you back. And so when you think about that again, it's like they were doing the best that they could. And I think they thought, as my, I've asked my mom about this and she was, her thought was, I didn't want to burden you. I wanted you to yeah. be free as long as you could be. I didn't mm-hmm. want to put that on you. And it, like that seemed like to be the smart thing for in their minds. 
And I can see why they thought that, you know, but what it left me with was this gaping hole of not having anything like I could say that's mean or that's bad, you know, the way when in response to microaggressions, for example, but I didn't have anything to make myself feel better. I didn't have anything to be proud of. I didn't have a well of, of knowledge to pull from to say like, I'm awesome being black. It was more like I have to compete at their level. I have to be like them, them being kind of white mainstream society, you know, to, to succeed. And I was successful in all markers. You know, I got into a good college. I got into grad school. I got a good job. I got an apartment, you know, in New York City, all the things. So, I mean, I thought I was good. It wasn't until I started researching about, you know, black hair and black culture that I was like, holy crap. I am coming from the most resilient, creative, amazing people ever, right? Yeah. Most people talk about like Italian, we're Italian. We love, we love being Italian. Italians are great. And you should feel like that about your cultural heritage. We come from like beautiful, creative, resilient, strong, like innovative, smart people, right? Yeah. My whole life I was told I talked white, you know, and I act white because I speak the way I speak because I like to be smart. All of these things that my own children are still told that to this day, which is so wrong. You know, it comes from this place where they're, we're not taught our history. And I don't even mean like, oh, you have to reach all the way back to like 14th century Africa, which there's wonderful things to learn there. But black people in the United States have been smart and innovative and educated and all of these other things that people should be proud of and they should know, but we're just, we don't know. So when I found, you know, our history from 14th century Africa and the love that Black people had for their hair and the creativity and the symbolism and the meaning behind different styles. I was like, that's amazing because you can still see some of those same ideas and concepts and feelings. Like it's just ancestral knowledge passed on. You're like, wow, that makes so much sense. But then also when you see how Black people, for example, you know, enslaved Africans used their hairstyles to put messages, you know, on the Underground Railroad, you know, different things like that. You're like, good God, we were so ingenious. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like entire maps. Right. right. So I'm like, this, like, and then, you know, coming up with hair product companies where Black people became extremely wealthy because not, we weren't trying to be like white people. We sold to our own people and made fortunes, right? It was like, you're not helping us. We'll help ourselves innovation, business acumen, entrepreneurship. It's like, and we're not talking like in the fifties and sixties, which is where that did happen. Even pre-civil war, you had black women making hair pieces and styling hair and innovation. It's creativity. And you're like, we rock. Like This is amazing. Like these are my ancestors, right? This is my history. Why was I never taught this? Why did I have never know this? So that's what I mean when I say I fell in love with blackness and was like, I am so proud. And and that's what also put this fire in me because I do think that so many times, you know, when you see Black people suffering, like socially, you know, societal, like kind of globally, you know, in the United States, I'm speaking in the United States when I, even though I'm saying globally, but, you know, it's like, because we don't know where we come from. We don't know that we come from greatness, right? right? The internalized racism is so real. It takes a monumental effort to ignore the stories and the images and the messages that we're constantly being told. I mean, it's not easy to just be like, oh, you guys are all lying and I know I'm awesome. I mean, that takes 
extra effort, either from your parents or from yourself, um, your school. Um, and, and again, that's why I do what I do, because I'm like, if people knew where they came from, if they knew how awesome they were, you know, then this debasement, this kind of again, this internalized racism would be a thing of the past. So I found that, I mean, that's what happened to me. And Mm -hmm. I know that it's, again, it's just keep sharing that information, keep sharing that information. It's there. You know, that's the other thing is that the information is there. Um, But even, you know, when you try to share that information, sometimes people will want to say black people, white people, whoever, they'll say, well, if that was true, why wouldn't, I mean, I would have known that already. Right. And people right. have like written these kinds of books and maybe they've have to self-publish them because the publishing industry won't publish them. So it's like, well, that must be like malarkey, right? Because mm-hmm. it's self-published. It can't be real, you know? So it's that, that challenge, but nonetheless, I found out that when I, it's like when I found the truth and that's why I, I love the term evangelist because, you know, when people find Jesus, they're like, I've got to tell you, got to tell you about Jesus. Like Jesus right. is amazing. My life is, I'm born again. I feel like the same way with hair. I'm like, let me tell you, you don't have bad hair. And if you think you have bad hair, it's because you have been brainwashed. We have been brainwashed for the last 400 years to make us think that there was something wrong with our hair and there was something wrong with us. It's not true. It's not true. Mm-hmm. So that's the, you know, that's what happens when you find the truth. You have to become an evangelist. Hair Story was released originally in 2001. And then we updated the book in 2014. The internet happened. And when when we first wrote the book, the internet hadn't happened. The natural hair movement hadn't happened. So we had to update the book. So it came out again in 2014. So we've been touring with that book for, you know, more than a decade. And we've even gone to England. And my co-author has been in uh, Portugal and Holland. Like we've taken this book all over the world. And so it feels like church when we go do talks because people will stand up and talk about how their life has changed. Not just their hairstyle has changed, which that often happens, but Mm -hmm. their life has changed by this information. That their whole sense of self and identity has changed because of learning the truth about their hair and their culture Mm -hmm. as it relates to their hair and things that didn't make sense and things that they felt were, you know, degrading or wrong, literally just wrong, which when you think about your hair, how could your hair be wrong? You know, maybe it's the not the, you know, like the style, but actually thinking that there was something wrong with them and their hair and what it meant. And then finding out the truth. I mean, people have stood up and testified like they were in church. And that's when, again, you realize the truth will set you free. What a profound thing it is to learn history for so many reasons, but definitely for the reasons that you have mentioned. You know, again, I've thought of myself as a writer since I was nine years old when my mom bought me an antique Remington typewriter. To this day, I don't know why she gave me the typewriter, not my sister, who was a little bit older than me, because I never said I was going to be a writer before that. But she gave me this typewriter. She found it a rummage sale. And since then, I thought of myself as a writer. And so again, stories and fiction, nonfiction, I write everything, poems, they're bad poems, like no one should ever read my poetry. But you know, I just, I just write. And so growing up with all of the privilege that I had, I really thought that I had to, you know, be on the front lines of being a change agent in society, which I thought meant, you know, my, my undergraduate degree is in education. And I would tell everybody I knew that I was working my way up to be the secretary of education because I needed to change the entire system of education in the United States. And so to become a writer, like to dedicate myself to writing, at first I felt that was indulgent, right? That that's not what I was meant to be. 
And so that took a bit, you know, it took some courage. But once I wrote Hair Story, like I realized that this could be my way to change the world with my words. And, you know, fast forward even, you know, 15 years later, I'm, you know, using my words on my podcast, you know, on my blog, in books, because storytelling is just that powerful. And regarding history, our history, it's, you know, when you say, you know, it's like people are like, oh, you're rewriting history. Well, yeah, because it was wrong. Like it needs to be, up. right? It needs to be updated. <laughs> and it's not, we're, re- we're not rewriting it, like changing it because it was, you know, like a different version. We're re-updating it because it was so wrong. And that's the thing that is so powerful, you know, exactly how I realized all of this information about blackness and black identity and black power came from researching our hair. But as I continued with my, you know, writing interests, you know, I've always been interested in diversity because of where I came from. Like I came from a world that was so white that in my world, growing up in Milwaukee, you know, I had an Indian friend, I had a Korean friend, I had a, a Jewish friend, and there was like one of each of us, right? There was a token of everything. And I was friends with all of them because yeah. I could see that we had something in common. You know, I could find the connection with them, right? And then in college, the same thing. I didn't make it into the, you know, the Black Students Alliance. Like that wasn't where I found my people. I found my people with my other token friends. You know, I had a Thai friend, I had an Indian friend, I had a Korean friend, I had a Jamaican friend. You know, we were all those, all coming from different parts of the United States where we were like the only one. And that was where we found our sweet spot of connection. And so understanding that diversity worked for me in terms of, you know, it was empowering. Like we were a powerful group of women in college, you know, because we could combine forces, combine experiences and do a lot on campus. And so once I started writing, like I wanted to showcase because in the real world, you know, like I went to college and was becoming really good friends with a bunch of Korean women at the same time that the LA riots were happening, right? And so the narrative about Blacks and Asians was so negative and so antagonistic. It was like, but but me and all these, like there were a lot of Black and Asian like friendships on campus, right? And I was like, how is it that we are actually have so much in common and yet the public narrative about Black and Asian people is hostility. It's sworn enemies. It's predatory. And not to say that I didn't understand what was happening, but there has to be more to this story than Black people and Asian people cannot get along, right? That they're they're just, there's just, they're too different. They're sworn enemies. Um, and I wanted to put something out there that said something different, you know? So that was like just one example, but it was this idea that we have these multiple examples of uh, black people and white people living, loving, and learning together. We have examples of cross-cultural coupling in communities and coalitions throughout history that defy and deny this idea that segregation is our de facto policy in this country. Segregation is a lie that just upholds white supremacy. I mean, from our earliest origins as a country, we know that Black people, Native people, Europeans were working together, were coupling. I was like coupling. Sure. And I don't mean, I mean that they were actual, 
you know, cross-cultural couples because of necessity, because that's who we were hooking up with, because it made sense for different reasons. There were entire communities like the Seneca Village in New York and Malaga Island off the coast of Maine that people were mixing and having multicultural communities, but a large population of Native American tribes are actually like mixed race communities. You know, they gave themselves new names, but they were really black men, white women, some natives, and they mixed and mingled together. And, you know, because they, for different reasons, didn't want to live in mainstream society, maybe because they fell in love with someone of a different race and they wanted to be together. Like these populations are all over. Even the Loving couple, the Mildred and Richard Loving, you know, they were the ones that people made an example out of, but they didn't think they were doing anything weird. Mildred Loving herself is Black and Native American and probably has some white in her also. There were so many examples. There are so many examples in our history of people of different races working together for social good, of loving each other just because it's like, yeah, you're a indentured servant. I'm a slave. We work together. I love you. You love me. Let's get together. You know what I mean? And right. this information isn't shared. And so we think, oh yeah, it's really hard to work as a unified coalition of people of different races and cultures. Not really. I used to have a post on my blog, like I would do like mixed race history, you know, and it's not about uplifting like multicultural romance. Like, I mean, that's fine. It's great. Um, my husband is Spanish. Like, I love my husband, but I'm not like, woohoo, like talk about interracial dating. That's not what I'm about. I'm just saying that there are a lot, a lot of examples uh, this country, particularly, of people of different cultures working together, living together, loving together. And by not knowing that, people assume that this is, we have such a long road to go. History can be so informative and it's freeing. I just read this amazing book about, it's called Enemies in Love. And it was about a German man who was actually a, a soldier in, in Hitler's army. He was a Nazi. And he fell in love with an African-American nurse who was a nurse in a German war. It was a war camp in the United States. It was a prisoner of war camp. They fell in love. They got married. And their thought was to go back to go to Austria, I think it was, you know, where his family lived. And it was not a positive exam. It's not a positive experience for them. And they ended up living in the United States and they found a community, a mixed race community in the late forties, early fifties and lived there. Do you know what book I'm talking about? Have you heard about no. this story? Oh, that sounds fascinating. Can you guess what state they found this like community, a mixed race community in what state in the late forties, early fifties where they were able to live and, you know, she became a homemaker. He was a, you know, he worked at a cookie factory. I won't tell you the name because maybe you'll know where it's located then. <laughs> I have <laughs> like, no they had idea. A it was in Connecticut. Now, when you're thinking Connecticut, like you're like, whoa, the whitest state in America, like right. possibly, right? Right. There was this like, I was like, what? And I went and looked and it's still there. This community is like, this architect was building these really cool houses and they were like an intentionally diverse community. And I was like, hmm. what? No, that's not like, why do we not know that? This it's is just... so interesting because for me, like I'll, I'll share a little bit of my journey with you. So mm -hmm. I moved to Detroit about five years ago and I live in a predominantly black neighborhood. And when I moved here, I started to realize a lot and learn a lot. And, and my eyes were opened to much more than textbooks or videos or, you know, anything like that could really give me. And I remember, though, 
realizing the realities of segregation and how like I had grown up in a predominantly white town all of my life out in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. And I just sort of assumed nobody wanted to live there because I didn't want to live there, you know? <laughs> and I remember yeah. though coming to this place of like, oh my gosh. And I started looking at maps and realizing how intentionally segregated our country had been and then learning the history behind why and, and all of that. And I felt like that was a really important realization for me to have. Mm -hmm. And I also mm -hmm. felt like not shame or stupidity, but there, there's just that reality of like, wow, I am white and I have grown up in whiteness and I'm beginning to really understand what that means and what that looks like. And the mm -hmm. fact that I could move through my life with absolutely no question about why it was every single place I lived it was predominantly white, if not completely white. And I didn't think mm -hmm. that that was unusual and I never questioned mm -hmm. it and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. I remember um, reading a book called Birth of a White Nation written by mm -hmm. Dr. Jacqueline Batalora. And mm -hmm. in that book, she discusses the and, and digs into the history of whiteness and the creation of white and black as races in colonial times. And yes. that was so powerful because she hits on that. And she talks about the fact that in the beginning, free men of African descent were marrying women of British descent, women of Irish yeah. descent, all of these different yeah. things. And because yeah. of these rebellions and uprisings that were happening against the elites, they found a way to separate and segregate, thus creating race, thus mm -hmm. creating this segregation. And so it's one of these things that I feel like it's so complex, right? There are so many mm -hmm. layers to this because also to then hear these stories of communities in the 40s that were in mm -hmm. existence and doing this intentionally it's like, why does that feel important? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because it's it completely contradicts the lie that, you know, we can't have integrated spaces, that people don't live well together. It just doesn't exist. When you maintain that lie, you don't have people like you're saying, like you, you never questioned it. You just accepted it. You didn't yeah. start thinking like, what could be different and why aren't we? And why couldn't we? I live in the city of Philadelphia in a neighborhood called Mount Airy, which is one of the most diverse cities in America. Most diverse neighborhoods. Sorry. As a self-proclaimed diversity diva, like diversity is my serious passion. Mm -hmm. I, I was shocked that I'd never heard of it because, you know, I spend my life always like I look for the most diverse church. I look for a diverse restaurants. I look, I'm always looking for cross-cultural communities, right? I mean, that's just kind of my natural thing to do. And so Mount Airy is just this amazing example of a neighborhood that was intentionally diverse. It wasn't built intentionally diverse like Shaker Heights, Ohio, or what's that other area of? Uh, like Columbia, Maryland, Mount Airy was a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, and then in, and I might get my timing right wrong, but I think it was in the early sixties, a couple of black families started moving to the neighborhood and white flight started like it did everywhere else. But the community members were like, no, we are not going to abandon this neighborhood and we are not going to be afraid of black people. Right. And these two Jewish sisters who were also real estate agents kind of took it upon themselves to stop white flight. And the way they did that was just so impressive and so basic. They literally started, <laughs> they took, and I'm 
flattening the story a little bit. I mean, there's more to it, but essentially they would um, have like the black family and they would go door to door and be like knocking on doors and be like, this is Jerome. Jerome and his wife, Marjorie moved in. They're normal, just like you. You should get to know them and not run away. Wow. I mean, it literally worked. They stopped this white flight by showing people that guess what? Black people, they're just like you and me. Um, they built, uh, they helped build an art center that's still here today that because they realized, you know, arts are a great way for people to come together and connect and share. Um, and, uh, and this, in this neighborhood now is, I mean, it's truly one of the most diverse neighborhoods and it's diverse in um, race and it's diverse in economic diversity as well. There aren't a lot of Asian and Latino people here. There are Asian and Latino people here, but literally the block, you know, the block that I live on, it could be black, white, you know, my neighbor on the other side of me is Korean and white. The neighbor on the other side of me is black. There are really expensive, large mansions that you could have black, white, anybody. I mean, I mean, when you think about these two women, middle-aged women knocking on doors and just, you know, saying like, this is silly. Don't abandon our neighborhood because black people, like, what, what is it about black people that are so scary? They're not scary. They're just like you and me. They want their kids to go to college. You know, they want to have a good job. They, you know, want to have a black party on Friday. You know what I mean? Like, that was really all it took. That was all it took, you know? It wasn't government intervention, it wasn't, you know, like riots in the street. It was neighbors talking to neighbors and people meeting people instead of thinking that, you know, Black people were what they saw on television. And that's why, that's what I try to do with all of my work, with my blog, with my podcast, with my writing, is I really try to focus on showcasing diversity in action diversity manifested in positive ways and in ways that are attainable in ways that people are dealing with every day. You know, on my podcast, I talk about, you know, I've done an episode about traveling or parenting, um, talked about K-pop music and how its fan base is predominantly African-American and Latino. Like all of these things that people can connect with, with just a click on watch Netflix or go to the store, uh, talk with somebody on at the playground, because I want to empower people and engage with them in a place where they already are. I don't want to make this idea of, you know, I know I'm trying to dismantle white supremacy and eradicate racism. Like, I know that that's my mission, but I want to do it in a way that can be joyful even because there is joy in diversity. It's just better. I mean, it's just absolutely better. And so I say that better. And I mean that in all quantifiable ways. I mean, when you have a more diverse anything, you have better problem solving, you have better productivity, you have, you know, more beauty, literally. So it's it's important to look in the past and look all around you because there are examples of diversity working all the time. Now, I have a question for you because we're using the word diversity and it's kind of the hot button word in corporate America. Yes. You see a lot of things that are just going horribly wrong within that sphere of trying to teach and trying to incorporate diversity in communication, in advertising, in business. Where do you think people are getting this wrong? 
Thank you for asking me that question, Jen, because, you know, yesterday I was actually on Twitter and not a place I spend a lot of time, Yeah, but (laughs) um, I saw some, I saw a tweet that was, um, it said diversity is for white people. And I think Ava DuVernay liked it. And I was so sad, but I know Ava is a big, not a fan of the term diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually did a podcast episode, a solo episode defending the word diversity because I feel like it does get a bad rap and understandably because it is such a buzzword it has become a corporate buzzword it has become this you know something you can check off you know you can get your diversity trainer in he does this little session and you can say that you did it when I talk about diversity I am absolutely talking about difference so the part about diversity that gets lost and this is where a lot of people fault these initiatives, these diversity initiatives, is that there's no follow-up. Like I say, diversity is a twin, an identical twin, and that twin is inclusion. So when we talk about diversity, we are talking about having like people coming from different perspectives. I'm speaking specifically of ethnic and cultural diversity. I mean, and you can have, you know, different types of diversity, but my, my kind of main place of coming from is ethnic and cultural diversity. And so when we talk about having diversity, like striving towards diversity, we could be talking about a group of African-Americans. And this idea that African-Americans are one thing is so dangerous and not getting us any further in our quest for, you know, social justice, because there is such a diversity in the African-American experience. When we strive to understand that people have different stories and different backgrounds and bring something different to the table because of their own unique experience, that's where we win. The problem is, of course, if you don't look at diversity as having that twin, that inclusion, that diversity requires that everybody who is at that table gets an equal voice, then it's nothing. Then we're just talking tokenism. Yes. that's And that's the difference is that when I'm talking about, you know, you know, having a diverse neighborhood. I don't mean, you know, which, you know, a good example was the Brooklyn that I lived in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. I lived in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which was considered a very diverse neighborhood at the time. And I was like, wow, this is so amazing. Like, I've never lived in any place like this before. What was happening is that that neighborhood was traditionally a black and brown neighborhood. And gentrification was beginning. So I happened to hit at that sweet spot of, you know, where we were like, gentrification was starting. So it looked like a diverse neighborhood. That wasn't diversity. That was black and brown people being pushed out because of gentrification. Mm -hmm. And now Park Slope is, you know, almost an entirely white neighborhood, right? And the same thing happened in the next neighborhood I moved to, you know, I lived in that was a traditionally black and brown neighborhood in Brooklyn. And now it's a predominantly white neighborhood because of gentrification. But there was, again, that sweet spot where you saw that crossing over, that middle point where black people were still there, white people were coming in, and it felt very diverse. That's not diversity either, right? That's a temporary trend pattern, right? That happens, that causes there to be different people in the same time, in the same space, but it's not intentional, right? Right, It's not intentional and it's not meant to be lasting. So there's all these ways where you can see a bunch of people with different backgrounds in the same room together. That does not mean that you have achieved the benefits of diversity or you have achieved true diversity. Because again, when I talk about diversity, diversity comes with inclusion. It's not just numbers on a page. Diversity does not imply just numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think when people say things like diversity is for white people, 
it is understandable that white people in general um, have more work to do to welcome others to the table, others that don't look like them, others from ethnic groups that, you know, they're not a part of. And that requires them to give up some power. It requires them to be confronted with other ways of doing things that they're not familiar with. And so to do that requires a lot of humility and a lot of effort that white people do need to work on extremely. Like they really need to work on it because they haven't had to. You are limiting your own growth and potential when you suggest, like you don't see that you have such an opportunity for growth when you make coalitions across cultures. Diversity is not for white people. Diversity is not a joke. What it is, is that people don't understand that diversity takes intention and diversity requires more than getting the numbers on the page or in the room. It's then utilizing all of those diverse voices in the room, having everybody have equal say, and then using those different voices to come up with solutions and to, you know, I'm, this sounds crazy, but to protect and serve, right? There's so many examples of coalition building where that is what worked. That's what pushed everybody over the top is that we built diverse coalitions. Martin Luther King Jr. was masterful at that. Gandhi was masterful at that, right? Nelson Mandela was masterful at that. It wasn't like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't fit this one little demographic. We can't use you. Martin Luther King Jr. was like, get the white people down here get mm-hmm. those unitarians get the jews here like we need them right we need them and at the same time they were absolutely unequivocally and and unafraid to speak truth to power and to call people on their bs right yes so it's yes. like well yes. we need you and we're going to bring you in but there wasn't uh you know a bowing down to people there was a truth no. telling a reality yes And and that is a nuance that is so often missing, I think. Exactly. I mean, I'm not suggesting that if we just get everybody in the room, it's all going to be perfect and they, you know, rainbow coalition. Woohoo, we did it. (laughs) But you can start with, again, like my experience in college, just as an example, like I found my people by finding people who had similar stories to me, similar backgrounds. Like we were always the tokens, right? We had white people make microaggressions all the time. And and because of that, we were able to personally feel so much better about ourselves. Personally, we were able to stand up to some of the other microaggressions happening on our college campus, right? We found strength in finding like-minded people. And so, you know, the coalition you build doesn't have to be like, well, she said that we needed to have diversity. So I'm going to just reach out to this group of Asians and this group of Latinos. No, find the ones that have a similar goals as you do, because then you will be able to start from a similar place. There's ways to do coalition building. There's ways to do cross-cultural connections that doesn't feel like starting from zero. You can start at like 15, you know, you can start at 20. There are so many things that we have in common across cultures that doesn't need to feel so difficult. And again, go back in history, look at other examples. I mean, that's why you had Seneca Village. You know, so Seneca Village is this community, this community in what is now Central Park in New York City that was mostly, it was um, free Black people and uh, like working class white people, right? Mostly Irish. And so they had similar in common that they were like poor working class people. 
but this is what they could afford. And they had this lovely community together. And that's why they work together, right? I mean, it worked because they had a similar lifestyle. They had similar economic, you know, potential or lack thereof. And that's where they were allowed to and able to build a community for themselves. Um, I mean, and that's all over. That's just everywhere. You know, it's circumstances, right? It's circumstances. But you say like, we would both be improved if we work together, right? Like our lives would both be better if we just worked together, right? So, I mean, the same thing in my neighborhood in Mount Airy, the people who were thinking about white flight, their lives weren't going to be better if they had to leave everything they had loved and um, their homes behind. I mean, it would be beneficial if it was like, can we just stay here and maintain our homes? And, you know, not for nothing, Mount Airy's real estate prices have like been the steadiest and like upwardly like growth if you look at real estate prices in neighborhoods, this is the neighborhood that holds on to its value and has been for, you know, over 50 years. So it wasn't just like, oh, we stayed here, but it's crappy. And like now the real estate values are really low. Uh, uh-uh. The absolute opposite. Even in the recession of 2008, um, home values held their value here and continue to increase. So again, it's not like you have to do diversity at the expense of, you know, succeeding. That's not what it happens. What happens? It usually is the opposite. You get better success. And you see that across not just industries, but you see that in families and neighborhoods, in books, you know, like even like in um, movies, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. for so long, the Hollywood has thought, oh, we can't put an interracial couple in the movie. We can't put multicultural friends in the movie, right? And Mm -hmm. then they do. And it's like, oh, people want to see this? Oh, our bad. Oh, we're selling out. Oh, you know, and it takes that more. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you think, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to me because I have lived this life my whole life. You know, my, my best friend growing up was Japanese, mixed race, Japanese and Irish. Right. And I was four, you know, when we met and it just never made sense to me that people couldn't be friends across racial lines. It didn't make sense to me that people couldn't marry across racial lines. It didn't make sense to me. You know, ironically, we lived next to when we, when I was growing up, my next door neighbors were a very conservative Jewish family. I learned so much about like uh, kosher laws and all kinds of things. Cause like I babysat for them and I learned about, you know, how you have to keep your meat dishes separate from the dairy dishes and all kinds of cool things because you know, that's how I lived. And I learned these things. And I learned about the Sikh religion because my friend was Sikh and I went to her house and I learned all these rules and laws and understanding about a religion that most people have never heard of. But living your life across cultural lines, like and being open to learning something goes a really long way. And honestly, that is what I try to do with my blog and my podcast, My American Melting Pot. That's why I call it My American Melting Pot, because that's been my lived experience. And I know that a a meal shared with somebody who looks different from you, Mm. reading a book about people who, again, lived in Connecticut in a mixed race community in the 40s or 50s can tell you that different things are possible. Going to a movie, you know, that is about that's just crazy rich Asians can like expand your mind to the idea that, oh, I didn't realize Asians had the exact same love of high fashion that I do. You know, it doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be, you know, with intervention by a supreme body. We can all be doing diversity 
we can all be working towards diversity for the betterment of our personal lives, but also for society every day, every single day. And if I can help people see that by, you know, reading my little blog or listening to my podcast or reading one of my books, then, you know, I, that's what, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm here for. I, I actually have a talk that I've started doing called doing diversity with intention and joy. Okay. And my purpose in doing that is because to be honest, I thought that my audience was going to be people of color and mm -hmm. there are some, but my audience is mostly white. Interesting. I'm like, no, <laughs> I mean, and I say that no, just because I thought I was reaching people like myself. I consider myself like a quirky black girl who, you know, kind of navigates this right world, but is, you know, really interested in diverse spaces and diversity in general. And, and, and I'm, what I have, um, I think the majority of my listeners are white women who are somehow connected to people of color in some way, whether they've adopted black or brown children, or they're married to somebody of color. Um, and vice versa, I do actually have women of color who are married to white men. So that's the large, like majority of my listeners, which is fascinating to me. And I have accepted that. Like I went through a moment where I was like, no, no, that's not what I'm trying to do, but it is what I'm doing. Like I'm trying to educate those who really need this information more than, than anyone. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I figure if you're coming to it, it's because you need it and you want it. Right. So that is why when I talk about, like, I'm very clear and intentional about the things I talk about and how I talk about them in a way that I hope inspires people. You know, I say that in the description of my, you know, in all the descriptions of my work in terms of my, my podcast and my blog um, is that I'm trying to inspire and inform. And I want to, I want to make people not afraid because I realize that is the thing that people struggle with is fear. You're afraid. And, and part of it, like you said, is because of the interwebs. You can't even dip your toe without somebody ripping your head off, right? Or making you feel badly about yourself because you tried and you didn't do it right or you said something offensive. And if people are too afraid to say something or try something, then what good is that? You know, what good is it if we make everybody afraid? I definitely feel that we scare people, you know, and they they feel the, they want it, but they don't know how to do it. Say, I don't want to give people baby steps to excuse them, right? right like I heard exactly. on, your, on your Chelsea Handler conversation about people like thinking, oh, we're so brave for having this conversation. And it's like a bunch of white women talking about white supremacy where nobody is challenging them isn't exactly a win. Right. <laughs> um, right. Oh, you know, you're right. just, it's just the echo chamber that we call social media, but you're doing it in your living room. So like not exactly a win, but um, I want to give people this idea that there are things that you can start with. You know, like, like reading a book, you can read a book and nobody has to hear what your inner thoughts are until you're done. Right. right. You can learn something about community X or this historical incident um, and educate yourself without requiring anybody else to do it for you. And then you're better off. Like, you know, more than you did before. Right. And the book doesn't have to be an academic examination of white supremacy. It could be hair story. It could be Same Family, Different Colors, which is a book I wrote about colorism and family dynamics, right? It can be 
Don't Please Don't Touch My Hair by Phoebe Robinson, which is kind of funny, but you get an idea of something you didn't know before. You know, it can be watching a documentary. It can be going to dinner, not at the steakhouse you always go to, but the Indian restaurant, you know, that's down the street. I don't even care if you don't like Indian food. Just go and educate yourself. You know, it doesn't have to be jumping right into the Black Lives Matter march. Right. Right. You might want to read that book or listen to a podcast. Even easier. Listen to Jen's podcast. Listen to Speaking of Racism. Then go listen to um, Kimberly Crenshaw's Intersectionality podcast and then go listen to, you know, something else. And so you're like, oh, for example, (laughs) that's where we start. Right. And Mm -hmm. I love it. Like you're always giving resources. I give resources. I give books. I give movie reviews, all these things that you can do. People need to understand that everybody goes in where they're comfortable. If you feel like, you know what, I'm not the marching type or I'm afraid of, you know, saying the wrong thing, take out your checkbook right? <laughs> and just donate to My American Melting Pot. There's a donate button on there now. Donate to X organization. You know, like, you know, the ACLU is doing good work. Just write them a check. Right. Like people can support and do this work where they feel comfortable. I understand fear. I mean, I'm afraid of going up against some people, you know, people who are like, diversity is for white people. I'm not really ready to like dive into a Twitter, Twitter, twit storm, whatever it would be called. I'm not going there. I really, I mean, I'm a writer, but like I'm fragile. Like I don't want, if people yell at me, I start to cry. I'm really bad at fights. Like I'm just like, Oh my God, please don't be mad at me. You know, um, I want everybody to like me. I'm from the, I'm from the Midwest. Like we're just people pleasers. So I'm not going to just engage with the, with like a certain group of people, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and I'm going to stay in my lane and keep preaching the gospel of diversity and multiculturalism because I know it's work. I know it works. I know it's real. And I know when we pretend that we are a self-segregating society by nature, that that's a lie. And it's a lie that keeps white people in power, right? It's just a lie to keep people of color from working together as a coalition. It's a way to keep white people who might actually join that coalition from there because it's like, well, it's just, you know, it's just not the way things are. You know, we, we default to that, all of us in some ways in our lives, you know, that's just the way things are. It's the way things have always been. And you may not say those exact words, but that's what you're operating on. Is like, it's just that way, right? right? Nothing will change. Nothing will change if we think like that. So you stay in your lane, you do it the way you can. And, you know, whether it's playing, what is that called? The Opoly one? I keep thinking of it. The, it's, inequality in, Opoly. In the, right. You play Inequality Opoly, you know, do it from a theoretical standpoint if, to start. And then when you're more in ready, you know, you might do more face-to-face, more engagement. But I believe in fear, but I don't want to let fear be an excuse. That's that's my take. Fear is real, and I understand it, and it makes sense, but you cannot let it be an excuse for why you can't engage. And like I said, I think your podcast and others like mine um, give people ways to engage. And I think that's just if you just stay mindful about that, like you can do this and it's going to look different for different people, but don't do nothing. That's the problem. Well, Lori L. Tharps, thank you for joining the show. Tell us where we can find you and follow you and tell us about your books so that people can go and buy them. 
my blog is called My American Melting Pot, and that's actually like a platform where it's my blog and my podcast. I'm posting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, always fresh new content that is um, news, reviews, opinions, anything that a melting pot enthusiast would be interested in. So I do book reviews and film reviews, and I t introduce people to cool people like yourself, Jen, and other people who are doing work around um, anti-racism and diversity, profiling a woman today who is a Black woman living in Albania who runs a online cooking school from Albania. She teaches people how to cook anywhere in the world online from Albania, which is Ooh, just fascinating cool. to me. So yeah. yeah, so I'm always trying to, you know, provide that type of content. And if you go to myamericanmeltingpot.com, you can you know, read the blog, but you can also find links to my podcast, which is a bi-weekly podcast, new episodes every Friday, and my Instagram and Facebook. We have a Facebook community as well. We have a book club that we just started this year where we read books that feature cross-cultural connections. We just finished reading The Other Americans by Leila Lalamine. So everything can be found through the website, myamericanmeltingpot.com. And uh, yeah, that's probably awesome. the best way to find me. Yeah. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to start the podcast soon because it starts, you started it last year around what time of year did you start it? So I actually was very intentional. I started the podcast on Black Friday because I wanted to talk about Thanksgiving and the lie that Thanksgiving really is. We talk about how the false story around happy Indians and Europeans breaking bread together has led to such a disservice and a kind of erasure of the Native American experience in this country and how people can reframe Thanksgiving. Yeah. So yeah, um, that so was timing. our first episode. Yeah. So timing wise, it's great because you get right into that. And you had the author from How to Be Less Stupid About Race, Dr. Crystal Fleming on that show to discuss that. So that was even exactly more exciting to me. I was like, oh, some of my favorite topics because I grew up and didn't really celebrate Thanksgiving for a very long time because of my indigenous roots and my family. So mm -hmm. I really appreciated hearing that conversation. That was really cool. Excellent. I'm thankful. I'm so glad to hear you say that because we didn't plan on talking so much about the indigenous experience, but how can you not? I worried after the fact, like probably should have had a person of indigenous descent on the show to talk about it also. But I'm glad that we talked about what we talked about. And I actually have heard from people after that show aired who said that they were really going to rethink Thanksgiving in their own families, which is what I want to do with everything I work with. Everything I put out in the world is I really hope if nothing else, it just makes people rethink their place and the way they do things in the world. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was truly a pleasure. And as a big fan of your show, like I'm a little bit fangirling too. So thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. Thank you. 